This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 582, Mike Henneman, pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Why are we talking about Mike this week? It was recently friend of the show at Tim Briggs here's birthday, and he asked for a Tiger player. He gave us a list, gave us a few. A couple of them were Hall of Famers. Instead, I picked Mike Henneman. Now, Mike Henneman was a, actually a very good pitcher, underrated player, an all-star. He's a guy who has a pretty interesting life story as well. Yes, a very interesting life story. In fact, we will bring in a guest a little later, Ryan Fagan from the Sporting News, who will help us tell Mike's story and about a recent article that he did about Mike. But first, let's go to the front of 582, where we see an extreme close-up. This is similar to the Jim Whalewander card, another another tiger, very, very close-up, and also extreme view of Mike Henneman's cleft chin. It almost, this doesn't look real. I mean, almost, it's, it's almost too good of a look here. This is our first cleft chin. I don't have any cleft chin history. This looks like a fake card, like it's a painting. It's a very classic look. I suppose the only thing that sets it in time is that he's wearing a t-shirt underneath. It's not quite, is that painted? Is that a painted on jersey? We may have to check with at painted cap for an official ruling on this card. But I I would say that this this looks a little strange. The tiger's hat on the top of his head, the mesh shirt, this is a potential painted cap situation. This is a stealth painted cap. That button is very suspicious. But as someone who has a cleft chin myself, I will tell you that his cleft chin is not fake. That looks like the real goods. It's not an airbrushed on cleft chin. (laughs) No, that looks legit. Let's go to the back of the card, which does not look painted whatsoever. We have Mike Henneman, a pitcher, height 6'4", weight 195, right-handed thrower and batter, drafted by the Tigers in the fourth round of 1984, born December 11th, 1961 in St. Charles, Missouri, with a home in Festus, Missouri. St. Charles is a nearby suburb of St. Louis. Mike was born in St. Charles, but grew up in Festus, and I think we'll get to St. Charles a little bit later on. Festus is about 30 miles south of St. Louis. Festus is a pretty good name for a town, maybe short for Festivus. Mm. According to Jefferson County's website, there was a town called New Detroit that was later named Crystal City. As it became a glass manufacturing center, the glass company officials who helped start the town declared alcohol off-limits within a mile of the factory, which probably a good idea. You don't want to have a bunch of drunk people hanging around a glass factory. So right outside of Crystal City, a bunch of saloons opened. And this new town created right next door or at the limit was called Limitville or Tanglefoot due to the large number of bars. You don't want to have anybody named Tanglefoot hanging around a glass factory either. As that town grew, they needed a less drunk name, so they decided on Festus. But it's not quite clear why Festus was picked. Perhaps it was named for a wealthy St. Louis banker, Festus J. Wade, 
Others say the name was chosen by a preacher who opened his Bible and randomly pointed to the name Festus in the book of Acts. Unlike Joey Cora, we didn't skip Bible class. <laughs> Festus was Portius Festus, the fifth procurator of Judea from about 59 to 62 AD. In Festus, Mike went to St. Pius X High School. He wasn't drafted out of high school and instead went to play baseball and basketball at Jefferson College in Hillsborough, Missouri. He was a junior college All-American in the 1981-82 season, and he led Jefferson to a regional title. He also got drafted in the 27th round. He isn't the biggest name to get drafted out of Jefferson. Mark Burley was picked in the 38th round by the White Sox in 1998. While Burley signed with the White Sox, Henneman did not sign out of Jefferson Community College. He was instead offered a scholarship to play at Oklahoma State University. He joins that Oklahoma State team with Pete and Cavilia. In his two years, he helped OSU win two Big 8 and NCAA and NCAA regional titles en route to two College World Series appearances and is drafted again after a successful 1983, but opted to stay for his senior year, and it works out for him. Mike and the team had a successful year. He was both a starter and a reliever, making a team record 23 appearances and threw one of Oklahoma State's two no-hitters in 1984. And that leads to a This Way to the Clubhouse that Mike signed as a third-round draft selection with the Detroit Tigers June 20th, 1984 by scout Paul Robinson. But wait a minute. I just read that he was drafted in the fourth round. We have some internal inconsistencies here. We have some copy editing problems. This is like the third time in the last five episodes that we've had a blatant error in the This Way to the Clubhouse. I'm going to send a note to Fanatics. I don't know if there's compensatory damages mm, that yes. we could be awarded here. This is an egregious error. He was not signed as a third-round draft selection. He was signed as a fourth-round draft selection. Probably like a $1,000 difference in signing bonus in 1984. I also have nothing on Paul Robinson. I could not find any scout information about Paul Robinson. Despite us not knowing anything about the scout, he did just fine after he was drafted and started in 1984 Birmingham. He was told the bullpen would be his best option to get to the big leagues, and so he became a sinker, forkball, and slider pitcher. Mike said, just give me the ball. I don't care what inning. Let's just get it on, and he had a good first year. He went 4-2, and two, six saves, 2.43 ERA. He didn't allow many base runners. Started in 1985 back at Double A. From his stat line, he wasn't ready for AAA yet, and that second season in in Double A was a step back. He had a 1.6 WHIP and a 5.76 ERA in 46 appearances, but this would just be a temporary blip. He came out of spring training in 1986, sent to AAA Nashville, where he was back on track. 2.95 ERA in 31 games. He wasn't established yet as a closer. He only had one save that season at AAA Nashville. In 1987, he had a very good spring and was disappointed not to make the opening day roster with the Tigers. Sparky Anderson told him that he was going to Toledo, but that he would be called up soon. And Mike's response was, quote, I was pissed. <laughs> but Mike went to Toledo. He wasn't happy about it, but he and he played with an attitude, but he was good. One Tiger star in particular he impressed. Kirk Gibson was rehabbing in Toledo 
When he went back to Detroit, he suggested that Henneman was ready for a call-up. On May 11th, Henneman's called into the manager's office. He thought that he was going to get demoted because of his pissy attitude. (laughs) And instead, he was told that he had to hop in a car and go to Detroit. (laughs) And when he arrives, Kirk Gibson sees him and says in perhaps more flowery language that you better not mess it up because I'm the one who got you here. And Mike, hey, to his credit, Mike never played another game in the minors from that point. And that leads to two fun facts on the card here about that 1987 season that Mike earned his first major league win May 15th, 1987, and his first major league save May 25th, 1987. I have confirmed with baseball reference, those fun facts are in fact facts. His line on this card is pretty interesting, especially in that we know he became a closer later in his career. He went 11-3 and with seven saves in 55 games. No one on this Tigers team had more than nine saves. This is before the advent of the one-inning closer and that really taking hold in baseball. Mike had a 2.98 ERA and a 143 ERA plus in 96 innings. True to his minor league form, Mike didn't care what inning it was, and his first month shows the variety of situations that he was thrown into. His first game, he got the final out of a loss, and that game actually took the Tigers to an 11-19 record. The second game, he pitched two innings of a 15-2 blowout. His third game, he comes in down 3 nothing with two outs in the fourth inning, gets the final out, and then stays in for five shutout innings, giving up only one hit. He earned his first win as the Tigers came back to win 4-3 to on a Sweet Lou Whitaker walk-off. Mike said, after the game, Sweet Lou kissed me on the cheek and said, you're welcome. <laughs> Love it. Well, this Mike's appearance on the team coincided, maybe it led to, but at least coincided with the Tigers' resurgence in 1987. They went 87-45 and once he joined the team coming back from a six-game deficit on July 1st to win the AL East over the Blue Jays. That was a great rookie season for Mike in 1987, and he was a big part of this Tigers bullpen. In his 55 games, he went three or more innings in 11 of them. That's a lot of innings to chew up for a rookie. And on October 3rd, tied with the Blue Jays 2-2 through nine innings, And tied with the Blue Jays in the standings, Mike came in to pitch the 10th inning and pitched three scoreless innings to earn the win when Dead Milkman fan and Tigers legend Jim Whalewander scored the winning run in the 12th inning. And that win put the Tigers in first place. They would win the next day to clinch the AL East. Tigers were favorites to win the ALCS, but lost the first two games to the Twins at the Metrodome. Mike had some ideas about how this upset happened. He said, when we played in the Metrodome, when the Twins batted, mechanical fans behind home plate were turned on that blew this wind toward us. I'm thinking, what the hell is this breeze? We're playing in a dome. Interestingly, when we batted, the fans weren't on. While this seems like a conspiracy theory, a former Twins employee, Dick Erickson, admitted to turning on fans in an effort to gain a home field advantage. Bill Lester, executive director of the Metropolitan Sports Facilities Commission said Erickson was, quote, a wonderful employee, but called his claim a bunch of hooey. <laughs> so this conflicting is a, reports here. This is a genuine conspiracy that I, I am fully on board with investigating because 
you could definitely see someone controlling the dome and turning on the fan to give a tailwind to your batters. I think it's I think this requires a lot more investigation. We do have some Twins fan listeners. I'd be interested in their takes on this. I only visited the Metrodome once, and I think I was about 10 years old. It was clearly climate-controlled because outside it was 90 degrees when I was there, and inside it was a pleasant atmosphere. I don't remember there being a wind. I also don't remember much about the game. And, and to be fair, the Tigers also lost two games at home in that series, so... There's no home wind advantage in Detroit. So while those uh, mechanical fans might have set the momentum in the series, they weren't totally decisive. In the end, it was a pretty rough series for Mike overall. In game one, he came in with Kirby Puckett on second base. Game tied 5-5 in the eighth inning. He intentionally walked Kent Herbeck, then walks Gary Gaetti. So the bases are loaded. And two of those runners he's responsible for, he gets pulled. And both of those runners that walked scored. So his ERA for that, for that session is undefined. It's, it's infinite or undefined, one or the other. Not a real he, number. It's not, a real, it's, it's not even imaginary. It's undefined because he gave up runs without getting a single out. And so it's dividing by zero. We talk about scenarios like this in my other podcast called Irrationally Speaking. It's more than one episode, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long-running series. Mike did end up getting the Tigers' only win, pitching three innings in Game 3. In Game 5, he gave up four runs in two innings as the Twins clinched a trip to the World Series. But in the offseason, Mike got award consideration. He got one Rookie of the Year vote. We've talked about some of the other big-time rookies, big offensive numbers from Mark McGuire, Kevin Seitzer, and teammate Matt Noakes. But the Sporting News named Mike the AL Rookie Pitcher of the Year. That's pretty good company because Mike Dunn was the NL winner of that award. In 1988, he started a run of six seasons with 60 or more appearances, mostly in save situations, but still versatile as a reliever. And in 1988, he had a great season, 187 ERA in 91 innings with 22 saves and an outstanding 205 ERA+. plus. That was the best in the American League among pitchers with more than 80 innings pitched. Mike said about the closer mentality, you can't be scared. The fear of being sent down should be enough for you. The thought process is that if the bastard at home plate gets a game-winning hit, he's taking money out of your pocket. So I'll fight him like D-Day. Put me in the game and give me the damn ball. I love it. Closers are a unique breed. I love everything about that. 1989, the Tigers only win 59 games, so there's not a lot of opportunities. Willie Hernandez got 15 saves. Mike had only eight, but he did get the win in 11 of the Tigers' 59 wins, and that earns him a spot on the All-Star team. He was the only Tiger selected due to the team's bad performance. He didn't even get a chance to pitch in that game, so kind of disappointing, but he did get a spot on the All-Star team. And I believe... I think that he met Ronald Reagan, and in one interview, he has he said he had a picture of himself with Steve Sachs and Ronald Reagan at the All-Star game. That's an incredible group right there. 1990, he's back in form, and the Tigers improved. They're closer to 500. Henneman had 22 saves, started a streak of four straight years with 20-plus saves. So from 1990 to 1993, a good closer. With the Tigers 
Now, save numbers around the league are exploding, but with the Tigers, he never had more than 24. So he never reached the numbers that Eckersley, Bobby Thigpen, Steve Bedrosian, and those other 40 save guys had. But over those four seasons of 90 to 93, he saved 91 games and had a 131 ERA plus. So it's mostly because of the team that he's playing for. There's just not as many save opportunities, but he compares very well in ERA. Yeah, and I think that the Tigers used different pitchers at this time and and had a different closing structure under Sparky Anderson than other teams were using. But 13th best ERA plus among closers with 60 or more saves during that time period and the 14th most saves over that four-year stretch. In 1993, he saved his 126th game, setting the Tigers' save record. 1994 was the strike year, and Mike was the Tigers' player representative. And while he was dealing with that potential labor stoppage, he was also having a disappointing season of his own. For the first time in his career, he had a below-league average ERA, throwing 519 in his 30 appearances. 1995, he came back, though, and was having his best year. By August 6th, he had 18 saves and 29 appearances, ERA plus of 317, a 1.53 ERA. So among the very, very best in the league in an earned run average. However, the Tigers were on their way to a 60-84 and record, and they started dumping salaries. Mike was in the middle of his $10 million deal. He's making his home in Texas at the time. The Tigers had tried to trade him to the Rangers, which is closer to his home, but that ended up falling through. The next day, Sparky Anderson called him into the office and said, I couldn't get you to Arlington, but you're going to Houston. And he said, go get him because we aren't going nowhere. He was sent to Houston for Phil Nevin. Phil Nevin would become a productive player, just not for Detroit. Henneman finishes the season with Houston and combined on the year 26 saves and a 208 ERA plus, which was the seventh best ERA in 1995 among pitchers with 50 or more innings. He became a free agent in 1996 and finally got that move to Arlington. He had a career best 31 saves, but it went along with a 5.79 ERA. Mike said he was mentally done with the game after the 1996 season with Texas. I don't want to be one of those guys sticking around and collecting money. I needed to be on the top of my game, and I knew I was done. So closing the book on Mike Henneman, 10 seasons in the major leagues, one all-star team, pitched in 561 games with 193 saves, which is 53rd all-time, an ERA plus of 131, and a 57 and 42 record. So that's the final line on Mike Henneman, but now an authoritative voice who can tell us more about Mike Henneman, and that is Ryan Fagan. Ryan is at Ryan Fagan on Twitter. He's senior MLB writer for the Sporting News and, like us, a junk wax enthusiast and has my junk wax on Twitter as well. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You guys do do great stuff. I know uh, every time I feel like I, I jump on Twitter with that the Junk Wax account, I feel somebody's talking about a, a, an episode you guys did or something like that. So I'm, I'm very excited to finally be part of it. On that My Junk Wax account on Twitter, Ryan, you open packs and look for favorite stories about players that show up in those packs. You know, it all started super organically. I mean, the real quick version is like February of 2020, I'd stumbled across a box of 91 Upper Deck. I was opening packs and I thought, you know what? 
I've got a story about like half of these guys in this pack. And I was like, I bet people on Twitter do too. And it was actually, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but it was Valentine's Day. And instead of hanging out with the wife, she was doing something with a kiddo. And I was downstairs and I was like, you know what? So I opened the pack and I just put it out and I posted it on Twitter. And I said, tell me a story about one of these guys. And like the response was unbelievable and instant. One of the guys on the in the pack was a was Griffey. So it was a Griffey Jr. There were more stories about the Milt Thompson card in that pack because it was all <laughs> it was all like personal connections. It wasn't, hey, this guy was awesome. It was, hey, I went to a, a baseball game one time and Milt Thompson signed autographs for me and was like the nicest guy ever. And so that's what this whole thing was and it was all these responses were these personal connections and stories people had. I remember I went up and I told my wife, I said, I think I've stumbled onto something here accidentally. We also saw that you go to Bush Stadium and hand out packs. Any yeah. favorite stories from that? Favorite stories from handing out packs of cards? Probably confused folks wondering why they're getting a 1986 Donruss pack. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say this: nothing's as good as the '86 Donners. <laughs> they're all they're all '88 score, '80 you know '90 Donners stuff like that. But some of the triple play from back then. And I'm from St. Louis originally, but we moved back here right before the pandemic shut everything down. So when I finally went to the ballpark in for the first time in 2021, I brought a, a bunch of you know a couple boxes of like '90 Donners, and I was going to hand them out just to the the folks in the, in the media, and then I had extras. And I thought, you know what? I bet people here would like it too. So I took a picture and put it on Twitter and said, hey, if you want to pack for free, let me know. Just come on up. And again, the response was pretty cool, you know? And so I thought, again, <laughs> hey, I might have something here. So yeah, basically every time that I've been to a, the, the ballpark and stayed for a game to cover, um, I've brought at least, you know, 10, maybe a dozen packs of anything from you know, 80, 88 tops has been in there. 89 tops has been in there. And, you know, there, I think usually I have a variety of uh, 10 to 12 different packs and just kind of give them out. And some days, some games, I'll give out a dozen packs, 20 packs. Some games I'll give out two packs, you know, so it just kind of depends. But yeah, it's, it's been really cool. That's a, I know I said I was gonna make it a short answer, but that's a really long way <laughs> to talk about what's been a lot of fun over the last couple of years, just kind of a, a nice little distraction from the way that life sometimes goes. So, And earlier this year, you wrote an article about the 1987 top set I saw. Uh, is it the yep. 35th anniversary of that set? Is that your favorite junk wax set, or do you have a, a favorite? That, that's it. You know, I think cause that's kind of when I started. I think I had a couple of packs in 86. I was born in December of 75, so by 87, you know, 11, 12 years old, and those cards came out and they were just, that was the obsession. We'd ride our bikes up to the Ben Franklin and buy the packs for 35 cents a piece. And, you know, and there's just, just that sense of nostalgia. And for me, it's kind of overwhelming even now. I mean, I've probably opened, and this is not, not an exaggeration, in the past three years, 200 packs of 87 tops, right? You know, several boxes and some rack packs. And every time I open one, I still get a little bit of a thrill. You know, it's, it's still there. That smell of the gum. You know, and trying to now most of the time pry the gum off of the back of the card. <laughs> you know, there's just something about it. When you're opening packs, are you building sets? What are you looking for when you're opening those sets? There was a card store, or card, yeah, that I've I've known the owner since I was a kid, and he had just this 
wall of old junk wax boxes and I could get whatever I wanted for 10 bucks a pop. So I basically was trying to get like one box for everything and just kind of relive the, the specific nostalgia to the different sets. And, you know, I've sensed when, you know, you buy all these cards and then you have to do something with it. And I promised my wife I would keep it to one storage shelf and then it spilled over so i had to consolidate some and you know some of them i've made sets i've made you know an 87 top set i've made a couple like 91 studio was a favorite of mine i put together a set of that i've done some of that and you know quite honestly i still have to figure out exactly what i'm going to do with all of it but they're still fun to look through it would and that's that's my crutch right it's still fun i still enjoy it so it's hard to get rid of some of these things you can, you know, insulation, uh, you know. <laughs> or or our friend that that runs the One Million Cubs. Yes, yeah. Yes. You can talk to Bo at the One Million Cubs project. You also wrote an article about one of our favorite things, which is Grandma's Red Scorebook. Anything that you found particularly uh, amazing about the scorebook? Literally anything. Uh, Mini Lee, <laughs> Mini Lee, everything about that story. Like he and he was the reason I, I got to hear all about Mini Lee was was through the pack of the day. Mike started kind of responding to those. And the first time he did and put a picture of Minnie Lee's scorebook and talked about one of the, the people, I immediately sent him a DM. I was like, A, what the hell is this? And why is it so amazing? And B, you've got to let me write about it. And I even said, I was like, I don't care if anyone else has written about it. I want to write about it because I want to know more about it. And he's like, nah, nobody's talked about it. Nobody's mentioned it. And I was like, okay, good. I'm writing something on it. And I'm going to write something big on it and don't talk to anyone else, basically, you know. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we talked dozens of times, exchanged different stuff, you know. And I've gotten the chance to look at a couple, like actually hold a couple of the pages of her scorebooks. And it's just, I mean, that type of loyalty and that type of passion that a fan had. And I mean, really, not many people knew about it, right? It's just, it, it was incredible. It's still, even at now as I'm talking about it, it's chilled. You know, Marty Brenneman was obviously one of the announcers that Minnie Lee listened to every night. You know, I knew I had to try to talk to him. And when I finally got in contact with him, uh, the first thing I did was I sent him pictures of a lot of the stuff. I tried to, you know, limit it to, I think, eight or ten. And I was like, okay, look at this and let's, let, then let's talk. And he was, you could tell he was blown away, right? I mean, I know he's a, he talks for a living, right? He can make it sound whatever. There was awe in his voice when he was talking about what she had put together and the, the collection she had. I'll have my entire baseball writing career, and that will always be one of my favorite stories of all time. It's certainly been our one of our favorites, too. And when you see through someone's writing their daily life and how it was connected to baseball, and it really does help you understand another person's life in a really profound way. So I, I think it's amazing. Another article that you wrote about, I think the same year, I think that was also a 2020 story, was about Mike Henneman. Yeah. But prior to 2020, what did you know about Mike Henneman? I've known about Mike Henneman since I was a kid, right? Because because of collecting baseball cards. You know, and I was one of the kids that baseball cards were my baseball reference. I, I wasn't just looking at the pictures and sorting them into teams. I actually didn't sort them into teams. I instead, I would memorize the back of baseball cards. You know, you look back and... And the first thing you're, as you're looking at an 87 or 88 tops card is you're looking for the italics, right? You're looking for the little diamond for the, you know, tied for the league league. You're looking for these things. And then I look for players that shared my birthday, players mm. that were born in Missouri, players that had my hometown. And Mike Henneman 
is the only guy I ever found with the back of a baseball card, you know, back then that said St. Charles, Missouri. So I've always known Mike Kenneman, and it's always kind of been a thing. I was like, oh, you know, anytime you hear, I'm like, oh, he's from St. Charles, he's from my hometown. It had always been in the back of my mind at some point that if I could figure out a way to, to write about that, that'd be fun. And then the pandemic happened, and all of a sudden you've got time, right? You know, there's no sports, and you're trying to figure out ways. So I decided that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to him, and I'm going to talk to Andy Van Slyke and Tom Henke because they both share my birthday. So I, it just kind of – I think – especially with Van Slyke and Henke, both were great and they were, but they were kind of like, wait, why do you want to talk to me? What, what's happening here? <laughs> you know, but we wound up having good conversations, you know, cause we talked about how, you know, your birthday, cause it's December 21st. So it's so close to Christmas, you know, and it kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but, you know, talking to Henneman, I, I had no idea where that would lead. My phone call with Mike Henneman, I expected to be very short cause I knew that he had not grown up in St. Charles. I knew he grew up in Festus, you know, which is, I mean, it's about a half an hour away, but it's a, it's another world away. St. Charles is the, the outer suburb to the Northwest of St. Louis and Festus is in Jeffco. It's South beyond South County. They're, they're different worlds. Turns out, you know, he had lived in St. Charles for maybe mm-hmm. a week because he was born and then he was immediately adopted. And basically they took him from the hospital in St. Charles to Festus where his adoptive parents lived. And I was kind of like, oh, well, so much for my story. But I was like, well, we'll put that in there. And then, of course, you know, Mike dropped the bomb on me. So, Well, we will get to that to that bomb in just a minute. So in retirement, Henneman bought a 147-acre ranch and built a rodeo arena in Prosper, Texas, which, <laughs> like, that rodeo and being a closer seem like connected careers, I think. And for 10 years... He competed riding bareback and participating in team roping. <laughs> this is our first rodeo rider, I think, on the podcast. Amazing. He later sold that ranch and facility and built 15 youth baseball diamonds. So he founded the McKinney Marshals, a youth baseball program, and that program sent hundreds of players through the college ranks. He said that he wanted a high-quality experience for his sons to play baseball, and there wasn't anything locally for them in Texas, and so he just decided to start it. And so he was the founder of this McKinney Marshalls youth baseball program. A couple products of McKinney are Max Muncie and Jake Arietta. so pretty good track record there, high-quality youth baseball program. He then spent three seasons as a pitching coach in the Tigers organization, with the West Michigan Whitecaps and the Erie Seawolves. And he was really highly thought of as a pitching coach. And I found an article where basically it said that they were offering him AAA money to coach AA because they wanted to keep him around. It was expected that he would keep moving up the ranks. And after three seasons, he stepped away because his youngest child was in high school and he wanted to spend some more time with his youngest child, his daughter Carly. The Tigers really wanted to keep him around, but he wanted to take this break. And by 2020, he's back to youth coaching. He was remarried and living in Kansas, in the Kansas City suburbs, coaching youth baseball, where, Ryan, where you gave him a call to to ask him about growing up in St. Charles, Missouri, (laughs) only to learn he didn't grow up there. Right. Instead, he, as you said, he dropped a bomb on you. And what was that? We were a couple minutes into the conversation, and he goes, how, how good of a story do you want? And, of course, <laughs> I mean, 
as good as you have, right? I wouldn't be a journalist if I was like, yeah, never mind. I'm not too interested. <laughs> you know, I, I've got my little tiny world view. I don't want anything else. So and he's like, are you sure about that? I'm like, yeah. And so he was like, you know, I, I found out, you know, a couple of years ago that I have five brothers and two sisters that I did not know about. And I was like, oh, really? Let's talk about that. That was a, as far as like a change of story topics in the conversation, that's as, as abrupt of one of, as I've ever had. So I was like, look, I'm going to write this first story and I want to come. I don't want to like even touch on that really here because I want to come back and, and do this one right. And I was like, if, if you have to be like all in if, if you want to do this. If you don't want to do it, of course, I, I'm not going to pry. It's not my life. He was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to do this. Let's, let's do this. So several conversations with him, with his uh, newfound brother, John, with his newfound sister, Maureen, and a couple of the others, and talked with his wife, Meredith, who kind of pushed him to get the initial DNA test through Ancestry DNA. And just the whole, the whole story really is, is incredible because it's not just that he found that he had siblings, but he looks just like his dad. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of eerie. It's kind of crazy. And we made sure to get that, uh, a picture of that in, in the story. And so the backstory here is that his father had an affair and his mother was a work associate. It seems that his father's wife knew about this situation. Right. Child's put up for adoption, ends up a half hour, 45 minutes away in a small, smaller town, Festus, Missouri. Was Mike aware that he was adopted? Uh, he was aware at one point when he was a kid. You know, he, he was reading some sort of book and he came across a word that he didn't know what it was. And he said, Hey dad, what does adopted mean? And they were like, maybe it's time to tell him. So yeah. So he knew for a long time and Mike's parents were his parents. Right. And there wasn't that at that point in his life, he didn't need anything else. Right. Because they had adopted him and his sister was adopted as well. It wasn't his blood sister, but she was adopted as well. So they had this family that went out of their way to lovingly raise a couple of kids and that was good for him right you know and that that i think that's why it, the story just kind of stayed there for a long long time when the the hits came on ancestor dna to kind of tell him that there was somebody uh, a relative there he reached out you know his wife meredith they i think they married in i'm gonna get the year wrong six or seven years ago but they've known each other for a long time she kind of was like encouraging him to do this so she was kind of a a motivation behind this and i think he's eternally grateful to her for doing that so they reached out and then you know there were phone calls and i think it was like five weeks later mike flew out to cincinnati and, and met them for the first time and a couple it wasn't the whole family that came to the airport but i said the first it was maureen i think his sister and john his one of his brothers and they met him there maybe another one too i can't remember offhand but they were just their their jaws dropped right because it would look so much and it wasn't just like the the physical resemblance they said but like the mannerisms you know the way that he would just kind of move and you know it's just, genetics are an amazing an amazing thing they really are so they you know and then they immediately hit it off i think he stayed in cincinnati for close to a week for that first time and the family had a a, a lake house south of cincinnati and, you know, Mike will go stay there and family will come down and, and hang out with him. And they'll, I mean, they, they immediately became part of each other's lives, you know, not just, hey, we're, we're related to this person blood wise, but we're not going to really have anything to do with them. Yeah, you know, they became they became integrated in each, in, in each other's lives. And that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's a fascinating story and must have been amazing as a journalist to have 
a story like that just kind of fall on your yeah. lap because you wanted to call up someone whose baseball card you remembered and was from your hometown. So here's Mike Henneman, who was a, a player you knew because of his baseball card. And then many years later, get to really learn about his life. So what do you think about Mike Henneman now, now that you've gotten a chance to learn more about what he's like as a human being, like as a person, instead of just a, uh, just a card as they say he's good people right he's a straight shooter he'll tell you what's on his mind he's got very little filter because he's not he's got nothing to be ashamed of right i think that's why he was so honest and open to talk to me about about kind of what had happened and i actually got the chance to, to meet him about a month ago because the high school coach baseball coach at festus read the article and he reached out to me through Twitter and said, hey, we would love to bring Mike back and have him kind of honor him at the, you know, at the school and have him meet the team. And so I reached out to Mike and I didn't hear back right away. And it's a weird position for me to be in as a, as, as a journalist with somebody having kind of asking, like, I can't just give him Mike's cell phone, right? Because that's not something you can really do. So I, and I don't want to push too much, but, you know, eventually they did they connected and uh, the, the high school St. Pius and, and Festus, they were playing a game at Bush Stadium because sometimes when they'll have day games uh, that the Cardinals are playing, you know, once they're done, they'll bring a couple high schools in and they'll get to play on the field. And it's kind of a cool thing. And St. Pius was playing one of these games. And so they brought Mike in and Mike's family and they were down at the ballpark. And, you know, the coach was like, you, you've got to come down here. And, you know, and meet him. And so I actually wasn't going to the game that day. So I basically went down to the ballpark for an hour and went and met them and met Mike. And we, you know, kind of talked and rehashed. And it was, you know, he was exactly in person as I would imagine, he, you know, as he was in, in talking to him on the phone and just kind of getting to know him. So, yeah, it was it, it was really cool. It was kind of a, um, putting a little bit of a bow on that, you know, because there's so many people you you talk to and you get to know so well, but you don't meet him and it's just different. But yeah, it's been really cool to get to to know him and to get to know his wife a little bit and to get to know his new family and just see they are really genuinely good people. And tying it all back to the, the 88 Tops cards, it's really cool to get the chance to meet somebody you knew of and find out they're not an awful person. The, that's the best kind of story is when we find out that these guys are great. <laughs> it, yeah it's way more fun than when we go like so now we're going to get into some troubling things <laughs> right <laughs> that's the same uh, way with those with those packs i post every time somebody says you know hey this guy was really nice to me and my dad I'm like oh thank goodness right <laughs> <laughs> and david how about you after looking more at mike henneman's at his career and and now hearing about this story what do we think as a player mike's in the oklahoma state university hall of fame He's been on multiple lists of the Tigers' best players of all time, their all-time 25-man roster from Fox Sports, one of the best closers, one of the best relievers in Tigers history. Henneman's a really good representation of how relief pitching and the closer role changed between the 80s and 90s. As we discussed in the Dennis Eckersley episode, when you get to that one-inning reliever, it was a huge change from the Kent to Colby's and the, the three inning save guys. 
In Mike's rookie season, he averaged 1.76 innings per outing. By his last year in Detroit, he was right around one inning. So he really bridges that gap. And as I said, he's one of the best relief pitchers in Tigers history, retired as the Tigers' save leader, even though that record has since been surpassed. He had a 136 career ERA plus for the Tigers, which is outstanding. And he was really effective as a closer. Not quite as celebrated as Cy Young winner Willie Hernandez, and he didn't have as many saves as Todd Jones as the closer role shifted to getting more guys in the 30-40 save range. But Mike is right up there, uh, and his numbers stand up. If he had had a few more 30-save seasons, he would be in the 250, closer to 300-save range. But a, a pretty good career, close to 200 saves, and a really interesting retirement. His post-playing career story, though, is just pretty remarkable. <laughs> Who owns a rodeo business? I didn't realize that was a business that you could, uh, that one could own. It's like roping the wind, and <laughs> and then to start a youth baseball program and be a in position to be a maybe triple A or possibly a pro pitching coach, and then go back because you want to spend some more time with your family, Mike. I think probably made the right decision here. Maybe he needed some more time and maybe he needed more time than he anticipated because as Ryan has told us, he found a lot more family to spend time with. <laughs> and this is the second player that we've had with a story like this. And I think my thoughts on these DNA tests, I guess I think like, what would I do if I found out I had this other family? And maybe it depends on whether your parents are still living. And in Mike's case and in Richard Dotson's case, as we discussed, their parents weren't, were no longer living. Talking about Richard Dotson, Jason Stark's story, right, came out and I was just about done with this Henneman story. And I saw the tweet from Stark that said something through the lines of the amazing story of a lost family and the DNA test revealed it all. And my heart sank because i was like you've got to be kidding me i thought he had written about mike henneman and I, my first thought was mike why didn't you tell me somebody else was doing the story and so i was afraid to click on it and then i clicked on it and i saw richard dodson and i was just like oh thank goodness oh thank goodness this story was not scooped well they're both great stories henneman's brother Newfound brother John said, We want more people to experience this. What a chance to live. Some people say it's embarrassment because your father, he made a mistake, but we're blessed that we're finally able to meet. And I think that that's one good way of looking at this. And maybe you don't have parents who are there to potentially be embarrassed by these stories or to have to reckon with the lost years with their child who was given up for adoption. Well, yeah, Mike Henneman. That's an interesting life that he's led, and these closers are an interesting bunch. A rodeo rider to come across something and just kind of ride with it. Here's seven new siblings. That's a potentially stressful situation that Mike handled without fear, and as he put it, put me in the game and give me the damn ball. <laughs> I love it. That is a, It's a great attitude no matter what life throws out you, so thank you, David, for that. Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us. And where can listeners find you? 
I'm pretty much always on Twitter, probably more than I should be. Uh, <laughs> the two accounts now, the main one, at uh, Ryan Fagan, it's my name, R-Y-A-N-F-A-G-A-N, that's the official one. And I then I split off at the beginning of this year because I felt like sometimes I had too many baseball card tweets. And I think, you know, there's a, a an audience for that, but not everybody enjoyed it. So I kind of split it off a little bit and uh, started the, the My Junk Wax Twitter handle, which you know, it's mostly junk wax, but it's not all junk wax. Thank you again for, for sharing with us. And thank you to listener Tim Briggs, who uh, suggested Mike Henneman. And a happy birthday to you, the card artist, disc golfer, and one of our earliest and best fans. So thank you, Tim. And thank you to you at home for listening. If you've ever gotten a kiss on the cheek from Sweet Lou, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.